from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio on 1200 WOAI. I'm Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran and your host of the program. We're here this week with Paul Querner, the Chief Technology Officer of ScaleFT. And Paul, can you share a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, my background uh, is from a uh, software development and uh, security operations uh, background. Um, and our company really is selling security software uh, to businesses uh, to make them more secure from data breaches. So this week, we're going to focus on one of the key ways that data breaches happen, uh, which is folks getting credentials and then using those credentials the wrong way. So to do that first, uh, we're gonna walk the audience through computer authentication and identity and access mm -hmm. management. So there's this AAA thing. What is AAA? And give us a, a, a little bit of a, an intro level course to it. Sure. So um, th there's really like, yeah, like you said, three parts of when you think about um, controlling access to something. Uh, there's who you are, your authentication, um, you know, you're Brett and I'm Paul and um, that's who you are. And that, that's, that's, you were trying to say, that's who I am. Like that, that's the only thing you're trying to say. You're trying to prove who you are. A second part of that is um, the authorization. What are you allowed to access? Um, that you're, you, Brett, you know, the CEO of your company can access everything in the company. But, you know, maybe your support technician can only access one application. That different level of access control is kind of the authorization. What can you access? And the third part, it's just mostly access management is about how you um, distribute that within your company or within the world, right? Is that you have groups of people who can access different things or they can only access things from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Um, trying to break down how you make those authorization decisions. Um, and that, that, you know, those, those separately, those things sound simple, but in a, you know, in a company with 10,000 employees, it is marvelously complex. Yeah. And then the, the last piece as we go through that is, is your, your audit of the access. Cause if you put a policy in place, um, some people may find, or we'll call it a loophole in the policy or a thing they're using it in a way that's not intended and by having an audit trail of everything you can go back on a regular basis and look through these so first one we talked about was that authorization which is what can you go do or I guess that was the second one the um, access identification of who I am so in computer land this is typically a username and a password what other types of uh, identity uh, exists out there that folks may have used or may not have used today? Right. So um, the, what you're trying to establish um, when you're talking to a computer of who you are, um, there's only a few ways you can do this, right? Uh, a password is something that you know. It's a secret that you know, and you tell the computer, and the computer's like, okay, you're Brett. You knew the secret. Um, other things people do are like biometrics. So if you ever use a like touch ID on an iPhone, you know, that is a biometric that says your thumbprint matches the one I previously knew. Okay, let, let you can, you're now authorized or actually you, your identity is established through that fingerprint. Um, there's other things like 
um, you know, sending you a text message that goes to your phone. So something you have, it's not just that you knew a secret, it's that you had your physical phone and it got a text message and then you put that into your computer. So you see that a lot in like bank websites, they make you, or PayPal or, you know, a lot of these apps, they call it multi-factor authentication. It's where you have something you know, like your password, and then something you have, like a phone. Uh, and the combination of those two are much harder to uh, you know, spoof yeah. versus a, a secret that you know, a password. Um, anyone else can know that password, right? But it's a lot harder for someone to also have your phone and receive text messages. So the idea is if you start pairing those together, it gets a lot harder. Yeah. So as you, you go through and, and businesses store these usernames and passwords in different types of servers. Yeah. Um, so from a, a typical small business, where are they keeping all their usernames and passwords? <laughs> well, um, generally they end up in a big database somewhere. I mean, the, the simply put, um, you know, if you're using a product like Active Directory or Google Apps, or um, you have some directory of all your employees, and in that directory is a password for each employee, right? And, uh, and that, but, but it's, the, it's the same structure as Yahoo use, uses, basically. You have a, a database that has a username, you know, who you are, and a, pa a password associated with it. And now, ideally, they kind of encrypt those passwords, or they hash those passwords. Um, but best practices 10 years ago didn't do that. Uh, so you'd have these clear text secrets. If anyone got a dump of the database, they could see every secret for all 500 million, you know, Yahoo users, for example. Yeah. So Paul's talking about a, a recent announcement that came out during the Yahoo acquisition by Verizon got disclosed, and Verizon's not very happy about it. Uh, we'll see how that all sorts out. But Yahoo was storing everyone's username and password, and maybe your birth date and some other stuff along with it in that database, in a, a way that the attacker not only got your username and your birth date, but got whatever your password was as well. It was either hashed in a reversible way or it was stored just in straight clear text. It wasn't clear to me in the, the disclosure on that one. Well, and I think in most, most larger databases, it's a mix of those things because uh, these larger databases have existed for 10 or 15 years, right? And so um, they have a, a mixture of how the passwords are stored, but the outcome is the same. It's that someone knows your username, who you are, and your password. Yeah. Um, and if you use that somewhere else on the web, uh, they can they can use it. So we, we mentioned a couple of technical terms. So there's a secure way to hash a password, and then there's a reversible way to hash a password. Can you explain the difference between those two and, and why you might not like to use the reversible one? Yeah. Uh, so a reversible hash, you know, if you turn a word like cat, into a, uh, a series of numbers and you hash it. Um, if that hash is really, really fast, uh, an attacker can build a database of all the common words. And you think, oh, well, cat is a bad password. It's very simple. But they're so fast now with, um, with how people are, are hashing these that you can build a database of every possible word and number combination and symbol combination out to eight to 10 letters. So this traditional thing of, oh, pick a password with eight letters and put a symbol in it and all those things basically don't matter if you have a reversible hash um, because you can calculate all possible combinations. Yeah. Um, and then they build a database of these and it's very easy to figure out what your password was. Yeah, they call them a rainbow table. A rainbow table, exactly. And so a, uh, 
a there's more there's newer secure hashes that aren't reversible like this uh, that basically um, use either more time or more, more memory to calculate the hash and they do it in um, th but these newer techniques you know they've been around for like five or six years or even a little longer um, but it just takes a long time for everyone to kind of upgrade how they're doing these things so why are we using passwords instead of so another way you could authenticate you've got a username you could use a certificate or a key mm -hmm. uh, so what's the difference between a, a text password string and a certificate or a key for that the the authentication yeah so a password you basically send the password to the server and the server sees it and then says oh okay we have the same password you know uh it matched a certificate based um, uses public key encryption. Uh, you don't send your secret to the server. You basically uh, calculate a, uh, a shared value based on your secret you have locally. Uh, if, you, if you ever heard of things like RSA uh, is the classic algorithm for doing this. Um, so you don't have to share your secret with the server to prove that you have it. Um, so you can kind of uh, the server can know that you have something, but not have to see it. Um, which means if the server's compromised, um, you don't uh, have any problems because you're not actually giving them the actual secret. And it means that database of, um, well, public keys in this case, uh, they have no value. They don't tell you anything about the secret. Um, but it's challenging to deploy um, because it's just it's not built into browsers for the most part. It's hard for... Um, you know, user-facing web apps to use it. Um, but on the kind of between servers and the cloud and stuff, it's a much more common way of authenticating things. Yeah, the, the public keys are actually safe to share, which is why they're called public keys. There's actually right. public key registries. If uh, folks have ever heard of a thing called a PGP, there's a number of these registries out there. If I wanted to send an encrypted message to Paul, I could take Paul's public key, I can encrypt it with that and send it to him and then only Paul, assuming only Paul has his private key, then he can decrypt the message and read it, but nobody else could. Right, and, that, and that's where if you're, uh, most consumers would see this kind of technology right now is in email and PGP. It's not deployed very much for web authentication. Um, it's just hard to use, unfortunately. Um, and if you're Facebook or Yahoo or whoever, you want more users. So anything that's hard to use just kind of falls out of, falls to the side. Yeah. So, uh, Going through this, so you've got this idea of an account, and you've created an account in a system, and now as a business, though, I want to have single sign-on. So uh, to get from having, a, do I just copy that whole database to every single application? Uh, there's some ways, I guess, uh, to federate or connect together. Can you explain the, the difference of some of these ways to um, have authentic authentication and identity span multiple systems? Right, so the, the you know, 20 years ago, yeah, you did exactly that. You literally copied the database in multiple places. Uh, but that had a lot of bad side effects. Number one, every app can see every password, uh, which is not good, because uh, if any one app is compromised, you don't have access to all of them. Um, and it just doesn't scale very well when you have millions of users. So um, most modern apps support some kind of identity federation, and it's where you know, if I want to log into um, a new web app, if you ever see the login with Facebook or login with Google buttons, what actually happens there is that app sends a request 
to Facebook, hey, I don't know who this person is. Can you tell me about them? And then if you log into Facebook and say, authorize this app, uh, that Facebook goes and tells that app, hey, this is Brett, and here's some things about him. And trust us, we authenticated him. He's actually Brett. Um, and that actually can use some of the um, public key cryptography that we talked about. And it's neat because then as the app um, developer, I don't have to see who you are. You know, I just see that Google says you're Brett. Um, and that's good enough to trust usually. So these are things, uh, OAuth? Yes. Yes, so that's what that's... OAuth, OpenIDC, uh, OpenID Open Connect. Yeah, there's a series of standards around these protocols. Um, but how most people experience it is kind of a login with button. Yeah. So you're listening to CyberTalk Radio on 1200 WAI. We're here with Paul Querna, and we're talking identity, authentication, and security across the Internet this week. Um, after the bottom of the hour news update, we will be talking through how do you keep your business and application platforms safe and secure in this new modern threat landscape. So a lot of these things that we've talked through thus far uh, kind of fall into a classical, what I call it, enterprise IT type approach where uh, you have maybe a trusted device, you have uh, a static set of permissions that uh, you know that Brett shows up every day at the office from nine to five. Uh, this doesn't necessarily really work for folks anymore now. As uh, the boss, I might call somebody at 10 p.m. and they need to log into the system. They're gonna log in from a different computer. Your laptop's gonna get stolen out of your car. You're gonna need to log in from a new system. You don't have your phone. So in this world as well, most applications now are not all necessarily neatly behind some firewall perimeter where you could connect in with a virtual private network software. They're all over the world, um, all over the internet in many different places. Uh, what is this doing to change that database directory of usernames and passwords? Yeah, so when um, you have the traditional uh, IT world where everything kind of sat in your one data center behind your one firewall that everyone VPNed into, um, this central database worked okay. I mean, it, it wasn't great, but it worked. Uh, when you explode the world and now everything is all over the world, you have no single um, firewall in front of everything, um, you actually see the outcome of this and all the data breaches that happen every day, right? The outcome is things like Yahoo has this major data breach. Um, so what people are doing is they're trying to go to more of a federated model, right, where your identity is provided by um, some provider that has an open ID or other protocol for, for um, identifying users. And that thing is still centralized. That thing still has a central set, a set of policies and groups and permissions and all that kind of stuff. But then apps uh, talk to it in a very different way than they used to. Um, and that's kind of where the world's going on that. Um, but it's still, you're in this transitionary state right now uh, where you have a lot of people kind of operating apps and whole companies and have this old school way, but that doesn't fit well with, you know, how they're um, consuming, you know, applications. Yeah. So as, as you go out and we connect to some of these apps uh, online, this gets into, it gets me thinking at least about, um, users, groups, permissions. So say if I was going to connect out and we're going to allow people to manage the YouTube uh, page f 
for CyberTalk Radio. I have to grant someone's Google account uh, access and I can give it some level of access or some service that maybe connects in and federates into their Google account some way there so that they can have credentials and a username and password. But if I'm an enterprise and I'm adding different people and I'm taking them off, how does this stuff get tracked inside of most businesses today? And maybe even take one more step back, Paul, if you can just help us through groups, users, permissions, and your, the way you think about this stuff. Sure. So um, it, it's very hard in a larger company to say individuals have access to individual things because you have a thousand applications and potentially tens of thousands of people. So what uh, most companies do is they organize people in either to kind of groups of people. So all engineers or all um, C-levels or you know, kind of groups of people. And sometimes those are hierarchical. You know, this division of people, uh, if you work for this one boss, you all get this group permission. And then um, you assign those groups access and permissions on applications. Um, so you know, someone in sales may not have access to the finance app, but how you decide that is based on who you report to often, um, which is the conceptual model. And so if you move from sales to finance, you're supposed to not have access to the sales app anymore. Uh, in practice, that is very challenging. Uh, the kind of cleanup of what groups you're in generally doesn't happen. And so, you know, you can see this, if you work at the same company for 10 years in four different roles, you probably still have access to everything that you ever had access to. Um, so you kind of gain access to stuff, and very rarely do you lose access to things. This doesn't sound very granular, though. Like if we talk about um, Edward Snowden at the NSA, so it sounds like he was in a system administrator group, and system administrator groups had access to lots of systems, maybe even more systems than they needed to log into. Um, if somebody like the NSA doesn't have granular group access control, how is uh, a regular enterprise going to do this better? Well, and there's two parts to the NSA story. Uh, one is the actual uh, access controls uh, and what you're supposed to access. And then the second part is auditing of that, that, oh, he's downloading thousands and thousands of PowerPoints. Maybe that's not okay. Um, so yeah, the NSA couldn't do it, and that was only four years ago um, now. Uh, that is very real. I mean, very few enterprises, I think, have tackled this well. Uh, I mean, Google and you know, some of the big, big companies have said that they're doing it really well, but it's a very challenging problem because uh, it's actually disrupting to the business if you take away access to something that someone's using, right? Like if, if you accidentally remove access to the sales app and that, that Bob or whoever was still using it, that ruins his day. He has to call the help desk and try to get it fixed. And so it's very disruptive if you're wrong about access control. And so it leads to this kind of behavior where you don't remove access to things. And, um, and then it's part of why there's so many data breaches is that you have kind of these broad, not granular access controls um, and they give you access to basically everything. Um, and that's where you see, you know, Google, for example, has published papers uh, they call Beyond Corp where they're trying to fix some of this, um, but it's a very hard problem. So after the bottom of the hour news break, we will dive into those Beyond Court papers and we will talk if you were starting from scratch today and you were going to do this right, how would you do it? And the Beyond Court papers will help us have a good discussion to, to get there. If you're an existing enterprise or 
even a small business, some of these things you can implement today. Some of them may be challenging depending on how your business applications now handle that identity and access control and auditing is in many is as well. So we've touched on auditing a little bit, but uh, what are you seeing as you're out there in the industry uh, talking to enterprises and different business folks about what do they have from a, an audit trail today? Sure. So what happens with auditing today is um, most people end up, they want it to do a lot more. They want auditing to be a lot better. But the reality is they uh, the audits are only available for once something bad has already happened. So once you have a data breach, they go look at all the audits and kind of piece together what happened. Very rarely are they used for proactive um, decisions about the future of what people should have access to. And that's probably the biggest gap right now is that you use audits when something bad already happened, uh, which is better than not having them, right? Like knowing that Snowden downloaded everything or well, in NSA's case, they probably have some issues in their audits as well. But uh, the audits are, are the critical part of looping all this back together. And today they're very disconnected. They're viewed as a as a, something you use later on to see what went wrong, um, which is a, um, yeah. So as as well, so with these audits and you, you authenticate and log into a system. So some systems will prompt you for a new password every 30 minutes, every hour, every day, every week, every month. Uh, so this is the idea of getting an access token or permissions to it for some period of time. Uh, what's the, the reasoning behind that and, and what does that do from an audit trail perspective as well? Yeah, so the reason you do that is you want to know, are, is Brett here on this specific you know, laptop or phone right now? You don't want to grant that phone access to your finance app for the next two years. Uh, because someone could take that phone, the phone can get lost, there's a bunch of reasons for that. So you have some period where you say, okay, if he, if he entered his secret in the last eight hours, uh, we believe that he's actually on this laptop or phone or device. Um, and so you're, you're, and that also says on the audit trail side, you said, oh, you can see Brett logged in, you know, at 930 uh, from the coffee shop down the street, right? So you kind of build a picture of what's going on with the user that if you just gave someone permanent access, um, a token that lasts forever, um, you don't you don't have that information. Yeah. So, as you go across the application landscape out there today, so as you said, many of these folks are solving for ease of use and usability. Like Facebook never asked me to reauthenticate on my phone. Once I authenticate once, I authenticated forever. If I install Facebook Messenger, it says, hey, are you the same person from Facebook? I say yes. I never even have to type my username or password into Facebook Messenger. Uh, as we continue to have data breaches, are you seeing any impetus for this ease of use piece to change or are folks trying to figure out other more proactive ways to solve this? Yeah, so it's a little bit of both. Um, you're going to have, um, you know, like your bank app, for example, doesn't keep you logged in forever. Um, so it, it depends on what, what you're protecting. People view their Facebook account as in some ways not that important, uh, at least from a financial point of view for most people. Um, but what people are starting to do, they take into account, I would call it like infinite factors, right? Uh, you know, Google already does this. If, if you 
log into Google and you're like, well, Google never prompts me. It's because you're logged in from your home and your office and that's the, it's all you ever go. But if you fly to Hong Kong, they will prompt you, right? So they already kind of build in this kind of dynamic behavior analysis of if you're in you know, San Antonio every day, you can keep logging in. But as soon as you fly somewhere else, they're gonna ask you to log in again. And so that uh, is happening at the consumer level and it's happening at some levels at the enterprise level, but it's still very hard to implement. So we've covered uh, AAA, the authentication, the access control, and the audits behind it here, and talked about identity and um, usernames and passwords and everything here across the internet. Um, after the break, we will dive into what's the way to go do this stuff correctly. And Paul is one of the world's leading experts to help us walk through it. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm here this week with Paul Querna, and he's the chief technology officer of a company called ScaleFT. And uh, we're going to talk about the future of how you should identify users and grant them access to applications and then what you should be looking for to keep everything safe. Google published some papers. They called them the Beyond Corp papers. And Paul is going to go ahead and kick off here and give us a uh, lesson on all of these things. So Google, um, this all goes back actually, you know, five, well, seven years now. Um, they got um, hacked by, by the Chinese government, or, well, believed to be the Chinese government. Attribution is always complicated. Um, and, and they kind of reacted to this internally. And they said, this was not good. Um, we have to find a better way. Um, and they were encountering many the problems that businesses today are encountering, and they were just there a little earlier, um, that they have employees in dozens of countries, uh, applications that live in all kinds of different data centers and different environments, um, and there, the traditional enterprise IT approach to this is you uh, VPN in, and then for the next 8 or 12 hours, you can access any corporate application. And uh, that, as an access control mechanism, um, failed them. It failed them uh, very uh, hard. Um, and so they started looking at, how do you actually authenticate someone? What does it actually mean to authenticate someone? Um, so they kind of pulled out two or three kind of major concepts here. Uh, one, when you authenticate someone, you're authenticating both them uh, and the device they're on. You know, that Brett is on his phone is different than Brett's on a uh, pirated copies of Windows uh, in Hong Kong, right? Like those, even though they might've put in the same password, they are different sessions. They're different people, essentially. So they kind of combine the concept of what a device you're using um, and where it is and how it's patched and how it's managed with who you say you are, which traditionally has been very separated. If you had the right password, you were that person. Uh, they're saying, no, 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 you're, if you're Brett, you have Brett's phone. Brett uses an iPhone. He doesn't have an Android phone. So if Brett tries to log in from an Android phone, something's wacky. So they kind of combine the, these concepts of identity uh, with your devices and knowing about your devices. Uh, the second thing they did is they said uh, this VPN model whereby a network-based access control um, 
that is not what grant should not grant you access to everything. Uh, by default, you should have access to nothing. That you have the zero trust um, by default. And anytime you want to access something, uh, instead of the central directory saying you're in this group and you have access to 400 apps, the central directory says you have access to nothing. And then they kind of put a proxy in front of the app. And that proxy will ask uh, every time you access it, should Fred have access right now uh, to the finance app or to the HR app or to the sales app or whatever. Um, so they made it a very dynamic behavior. And when you have this kind of central system, the central directory now is making a dynamic decision, uh, it can use a lot more data inputs and a lot more, be a lot smarter about it. Um, and you see this in their own products, you know, like Gmail. If you use Gmail and you go somewhere new, it'll ask you to log in again. You know, those behaviors are following the same pattern. Um, so as a user, it may not look very different. Um, some of your user experiences are very similar, but it's a completely uh, different flow on the server side of where, uh, what components talking to what components and what they're asking. Yeah, so to, to take a real world physical uh, analogy, I think that everyone can follow along with. Say I'm a security guard inside of a bank and I stand there next to the vault and there's uh, one of the treasurers of the bank that goes in and out of the vault all the time, every day, and they bring money in and they take money out. And so normally you allow them to do it. Let's say that it's 4.40 p.m. on Friday. They're dressed in a vacation clothes. They've got a carry-on luggage they're rolling with them. You see a taxi parked out front and they're going into the vault, loading up that briefcase full, uh, suitcase full of money and then trying to take the suitcase out the front. As a security guard standing next to the vault, you now realize that that person that should have access, that needs to have access to do their job, should not have access at this time under this scenario. And that's the using things above and beyond who they are or their access card or credentials, or they definitely knew their password, but their motives were different mm -hmm. um, as an individual or maybe in the computer side world, maybe now my computer is compromised. So it you I go to log in from a computer to an application, that application requires a scan of my system and it says, hey, Brett, right now we see malware on your system. We're not actually gonna let you in from that computer. Right, and, and then that's that's what's different. In, a, in the real world, you uh, often apply human judgment uh, in a real-time decision-making, like can Brett you know, go into the bank vault? Uh, but in the computer world, we've traditionally just said, oh, well, you have Brett's password, That's that you're now Brett, right? And so breaking that kind of traditional mindset uh, is what, Beyond Corp is really about. It's about putting in the right architecture so that you can make those dynamic decisions. You know, the last 20 or 30 years of IT that you couldn't decide at runtime uh, who has access to what. It was very much you, you decided when you hired an employee what apps they have access to. Um, not, you know, on Friday at 440, should they have access to something right now. Yeah. So in a Modern application design. So say I'm, I'm writing a, a web app for my company, and this web app's going to be a, a, a app to look up customer records. Uh, traditionally, I would have a, a web authentication pop-up. I would connect over probably to our, our Active Directory system via OAuth, um, and I would check and see, can I uh, grant this user access? Do they have those credentials and permissions? If I wanted to move to a beyond corp model as a software dev or a, a IT department in a business, and I want to tell my software developers now to, we're going to move to this behavioral-based risk assessment, how does that change our development flow? Uh, it doesn't change a lot from a developer's point of view. 
Um, you're still probably going to use kind of OpenID and OAuth and some of these things. It's just um, you you it actually gets easier. Um, the 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 Google method of deploying this, they deploy a single kind of global proxy in front of all their apps, and so your app actually has to do less work. Um, this proxy though now controls access control, um, and so in a small business that's still pretty hard to get that those products really aren't uh, broadly available right now. In a larger enterprise though, um, you know there, there's more things that are out there that start doing this, um, but it's it's more of an architectural change, so that this this proxy application or this gateway is what Google calls it, kind of sits in front of your application um, so that your app doesn't have to change very much. Um, it still will do kind of uh, OpenID or other um, web flows for federation, um, but it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to know. That's actually the most important part. If you try to teach every application how to make a runtime trust risk-based uh, assessment, it's very, very hard because uh, you have thousands of applications. So you kind of want to centralize that into this kind of gateway uh, so it's a new architecture, really, that's that's different than what you're used to doing. So does this gateway install on each of my application servers? Does it sit on my network somewhere? How how do I go and deploy this gateway? So most people do it, uh, they kind of point their DNS at the, uh, the, the gateway, and then that, that gateway forwards traffic uh, to uh, an application. So in, instead of right now, let's say that I was going to log into um, the customer management application at my company, and let's say that was customermanagement.company.com. Yep. Today that points to a load balancer or points to directly to the application server. You would change that first address record to point to the identity gateway. Yes. And then after doing the authentication, does all traffic continue to flow through this identity gateway? Is this just a new smarter application firewall or how, how does it hand off from there? Uh, traffic does. flows through, yes, uh, and that, but that also allows uh, kind of the third leg of audits to be done in a consistent, repeatable way. Because now this this gateway sees all the traffic and can say, "Oh, look, you're downloading ten thousand, uh, you know, powerpoints. Uh, that's not okay. We're going to make a dynamic decision to say, uh, even though we initially let you in, your behavior is such that 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 is not an allowed behavior." So, this, I guess if you had an enterprise world, so. Um, there's solutions out there, they call them data leak prevention, data loss prevention, a web application firewall. Is this like Beyond Corp Identity Gateway a feature of those kind of products? Are they doing this type of stuff or not really today? Not really today. Uh, and Google kind of says they all belong together. Uh, that's kind of their point of view, and I, I personally agree with it, that they are all very interrelated features, that a data loss prevention strategy should is deeply tied to who you are, right? Uh, certain people in your company probably should be able to download a lot of things. Other people should not at all. Or certain people never do something and then start doing something. And so it's deeply, deeply tied to who you are, what you should have access to, what device you're doing it from, right? Like maybe downloading uh, one PowerPoint from your phone is okay, but downloading a thousand from your phone, something is obviously wrong, right? So in my mind, they are deeply linked together. They're not separate products in the long run. Uh, today we think of them as separate product categories, but they're really, in my mind, all together as one. So today folks are rolling out these different point products um, and they're trying to pull the information. If I'm an enterprise today, I have a, a security information management platform or a security event management platform where I may feed all of these different logs or audit trails. It could be something like an arc site, could be Splunk, could be all sorts of 
products out there. Uh, is this Beyond Corp just kind of the genesis of all of those things really working together, or is it a am I going to throw all of that stuff away and start fresh? Uh, look, short term, all these things will exist for a long time. Uh, Beyond Corp is really a vision for a, a kind of new architecture, and that incorporates many of these features. Um, so I think uh, you know the next five years you'll see them just kind of integrated together but you know 10 years from now it's an architectural change it says this is how you prevent data breaches you know you have to have something kind of uh you know we call it a kind of man in the middle uh, that is your security guard that is you know tracking everything going in and out of your company uh and it needs to be smart and you need to have an architecture that enables that um today apps are just kind of spread out everywhere and that's good for me you can have a lot of apps and do a lot of things but you kind of lose out on that man in the middle that sees what's going on. Yeah. So you're listening to Cyber Talk Radio on 1200 WAI. I'm here with Paul Querna, the Chief Technology Officer of ScaleFT, and we're talking through the future of application security. So uh, this segment we've been going through from a user authentication and user verification perspective for normal users of applications. Uh, so there's this separate, the root level user, the admin user, the, the one user to rule them all. Uh, is there different things in these Beyond Court papers that you uh, that they talk about for user level access versus admin level access? Yeah, so in the traditional market, people have defined that as kind of privileged uh, access control, like as a separate category. Beyond Corp actually says that they're one and the same. Uh, that privileged access is the same as anyone else accessing your company. Uh, which I think is a, uh, a good distinction. or I, you know, I think that that is how the world should be seen. If you have a really smart way of authenticating, um, you know, can your salesperson download a PDF, the same technology should apply to the sysadmin. Um, so I see them as converging, that you, if you have a really good way to detect you know, bank robbers, you don't say, uh, well, except for the, you know, the CFO, he can do whatever he wants. You, know, like you, 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 you want to use the same technology everywhere. So I see them as not different. Um, which is a little different than where the market is today. Today, the root or admin user has you know perfect access to everything. Um, but even in you know, larger enterprises, that's already not true. You know, you already have significant restrictions on what they can do, or, or time limits, and all kinds of other things that you build into compliance standards. Say you can only do it for 15 minutes. I mean, so it's already happening. I think it's just going to happen faster. Yeah, well, it's like with our infrastructure um, at my company, we don't have credentials stored on the systems for any of our administrators. Those credentials are placed there temporarily when people need to be on the system and then they're not there Yes. Uh, in the the rest of the day or time or week. But as you're going through, so you've got, you know, say your admin access is all flowing through this Beyond Corp gateway. Does that include things like, is this a man in the middle for my secure shell? Is, is this a... a Folks would call it maybe a bastion host or a, a uh, gateway, I guess, yeah, as well. But like, am I forced to bounce all of all of my traffic from all of my different applications through this security system? So uh, the way Google thinks about it is that um, for internal applications, for things that are for my company, that is what you do. Uh, that you want to see all that traffic. That it is your right as a company that they're your employee. You want to see everything. Uh, their point of view is also that if they're a Google employee is going out to Facebook, they don't man in the middle of that. So they're very focused on um, controlling access to their apps and not a gateway that prevents all traffic to the internet 
uh, if you're an employee in an office, uh, which I think is a good balance, right? You want employees like privacy. Uh, you shouldn't necessarily want to man in the middle everything they're doing in the, in the entire work, even though if it is a corporate laptop. It's about balancing that. And so they, Google's side of this is really focused on, hey, for all of our internal apps, where you know, if you're actually in the sales app, you, you shouldn't really expect privacy there. Like anything you say or do in the sales app should be attributable to you, yeah. um, which I think is a, a, a reasonable policy for a company. So if if I'm a, a root level admin, uh, maybe a site reliability engineer at Google, so that's one of their jobs where this is uh, the folks that run Google's infrastructure. They make sure Gmail's online. They make sure search is online. Uh, am I able to log into a, a system in this BeyondCorp model and type rm-rf dot? Like, can I just delete the internet effectively, delete Google search? Can I start deleting the files for that? Uh, sure. Uh, BeyondCorp really isn't about necessarily stopping you from doing the first thing wrong. It's about you, then you don't have access to anything else after that, right? So it's not trying to, uh, you know, be a minority report about all future things you might do. Um, it's trying to say, hey, we have visibility and everything now. And then those the things that you just did can inform our next decision. Um, so you're not really going to prevent one bad thing from happening. But it's about the time to detection of a bad thing happening, right? So that, okay, we found a hacker in our system. We knew about it, you know, 15 seconds after they did something, right? And then we immediately locked it down and did all the stuff. And so that's where really, you're trying to not prevent all bad things from ever happening. It's really about what we call like a mean time to detection. And if you look at some of the breach reports in the last five years, many times companies were breached for hundreds of days, yeah. you know, from, from the point of initial compromise to when they even detected that they had an attacker, it could be hundreds of days. And so you're just trying to get an architecture where that's measured in your unit of time that you measure this in is seconds. If you do that, you're already winning, you know, as far as cybersecurity goes. Yeah, we had on... Uh... Chris Garrett, who's an expert in advanced persistent threat, and uh, he said that his research data shows the average uh, time that attackers inside a system before detection is 204 days right now. And these are people that are actually detecting the attacker at some point. There are many systems that have been compromised for an unknown amount of time because the attackers still have not been even detected to begin with. So if I'm detecting abnormal behavior uh, from a user, and I lock that user down. Uh, how how does this not just happen if like I wanted to denial of service a company? Couldn't I just go if I knew people's email addresses because they're out there on LinkedIn, they're out there on a web forum, they're out there all over the internet, and I go try to log into a bunch of a company's apps as a hacker, and I'm now uh, all these people have multiple failed login attempts, and I'm doing it from Tor tunnels, I'm doing it off of VPN services, so. I'm coming from all types of different IPs using all different usernames and passwords of this company. Can I just shut somebody down? Well, that's um, so Google thinks about this as part of the reason you have the device as part of the equation, right? Like, yeah, an attacker can attack you from all these different IPs and things, but they don't have your phone. They don't have your laptop. So they, that's where they really combine these concepts that uh, it's not just good enough to know your password. It's all the other things that identify you, the kind of infinite factors. And so you know, in that case of locking someone out of an account, uh, what you'll often do is say, hey, we're gonna send you a text message, and if you, you know, type in the code, we still believe it's you and you're good. So you kind of see this, they deploy this in their products like Gmail, right? Where they kind of back off, they do back off authentication, where if something's weird, they'll just ask you to add another factor. 
Uh, and that's kind of built into how you do Beyond Corp. So you may not actually even um, lock an account in a traditional sense. You'll say, huh, something weird's going on. Let's ask them to do another factor right now to make sure they are who they say they are. Um, or you could do things like ask their boss, like, is, you know, am I supposed to be in Hong Kong right now? You know, those kind of questions you can propagate in a very dynamic manner uh, that previously just wasn't possible because of the architecture. So it sounds like a Beyond Corp model may even help against some of these password lockout attacks. Oh, for sure. Yeah, because you're, you're not, you stop relying on this one factor, this one secret. Um, and if you don't have to rely on that, um, the whole like industry we built around password protection kind of starts falling apart. So, and you talk about authenticating with who my phone is, who my computer is. Does this do something unique off the hardware in the computer? Is this using these, these TPM modules or other things, or is it work with any phone or any computer? Uh, it, so in, um, it can work with devices that have TPMs. So like if you look at uh, Google's Chromebooks, those are these laptops that Google's kind of specified and built, um, and they're usually relatively cheaper. They have built-in TPMs, uh, and these are trusted platform modules. It's a, it's a whole specification of how you kind of store a private key, and it's uh, you know, tamper-resistant. Uh, and it's very hard to fake that you're this Chromebook. Um, and so they make these laptops now that have this built in. At the same time, um, you still can have other devices that have less trust. It's really about varying the trust level as well so that you make a dynamic decision. It's if, if you want to access the uh, sales CRM that every salesperson should have access to in the field, it's probably fine if you do that from your phone that we don't have a lot of information about. But if you want to access the company's financials, we might say, hey, that requires a device with a TPM that is managed by our company uh, that is patched properly. So you can vary what access you have um, based on what device you're doing it from. So it's all kind of interrelated that, that a device is no longer just, you know, trusted inherently. The attributes of that device vary, can vary what you have access to. So this could be, um, if I'm on my phone, I have the rights to upload new files. I have the rights to download uh, less than 10 files an hour, uh, but I don't have the rights to delete anything because we're worried that my phone maybe is not as trusted as my desktop computer with the TPM chip in it. And if I'm on the desktop computer, on the wired network at the office, and uh, then I can upload all I want, I can download all I want, I can do more of these things. So in order to do that, is this feels like there needs to be some change in the application development around groups and users and permissions. Because uh, you've got the authentication piece that you can kind of handle out in front of the gateway level. But as you start to get into these group users and permissions, if I'm a developer of a, a web app, how do I have to integrate and tie into these things uh, to manage those role-based decisions? So Google actually doesn't talk about that a lot in their own papers. Um, our belief, or my belief, is that um, you will still have kind of group concepts like you're very used to, but things like rate limits and kind of knowledge of that is going to move into uh, this gateway. Um, so it's going to be a mix of both. Um, but the, the core part is making that decision-making, making the assessment of what your rate limit is and uh, what you can delete but not add things, or, or the other way around usually. Uh, that has to be centralized, and that has to be a thing that knows about your device and all that kind of stuff. So you kind of want to shield the application from most of that. The application just sees Brett's okay for the next three minutes. Um, so you try to keep it very simple for the application developer. So this sounds like, though, as we, you go to this um, central security brain, 
you're creating the pot of gold. How does BeyondCorp talk about keeping the pot of gold safe itself as an application? Sure. So in any kind of corporate environment, there's always been a directory of who works here and what they have access to. So there's always at some point some source of truth. Um, and that source of truth, it just has to exist. There has to be something that says you can have access to this thing. Um, in a BeyondCorp thing, though, um, it's much easier to lock that down uh, because the, what it operates on is an HTTP kind of proxy. It's a very well-known protocol. Um, you can scale it very well. So it doesn't need as much, um, it's not as much of a pot of gold as a, you know, a series of, you know, individual coins that are spread out in your infrastructure. So it matters, but at the same time, it's not as, uh, I don't believe it is really a pot of gold, but at some point you still always have the, you know, you're the CEO of this company, you're in these groups, you know, type thing at the end of the day. Yeah. So we've gone through the future of how you should be securing your enterprise, your business, and yourself online on the internet. You've been on Cyber Talk Radio this week, Paul. Um, any closing thoughts for us? Uh, I think it's a ex very exciting time. Um, I think um, you know, five years ago, we started seeing more of these data breaches. And I think we're at the point where people are saying, you have to do something about this. I, you know, Every week, there's a new announcement about another major breach. Um, and so I think you're, you're at the point now where people have said enough is enough. We need to change how this works. It's obviously not working. Um, so that's why I'm excited to be in this industry right now is that, that people want to make this better. Uh, and so I really enjoy that. Yeah, because we're going to go from 5 billion devices on the Internet to 20 billion devices here over the next few years. And if we've not figured out how to keep them all safe, secure, and monitor their behavior, we're going to be in the Wild West. Thank you for listening to CyberTalk Radio on 1200 WOAI.